Welcome back to the People's Podcast on the People's Basics. Today, we have a special guest with us today. We're talking to City Councilor Carlos Menchaca. He's one in New York City. And so we got to really get to know him when we were starting our coverage of the New York City mayoral race that we got involved in. And so today, we have a lot to talk with him. Jackie, do you want to talk about some of the topics we're going to discuss with Carlos today? Yeah, I was really excited reading some um, coverage of what he's done as a council person. And um, I'm really excited about like the kind of direct democracy initiatives that he kind of heralded in. Um, and so like, we're gonna be talking about local politics, how this kind of stuff affects every single one of us on a daily basis. So, um, you know, they say all politics is local and today we're gonna to talk with someone who's actually in local politics. Yeah, it's gonna be a treat. So without any further ado, let's bring Carlos onto the program. Carlos, welcome to the People's Basics. Buenas noches, everyone. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to be able to have you. So, Carlos, uh, for those who don't know you too well, could you let us know what kind of drove your kind of career into activism? I know you've been in public service since the very beginning of your career. What kind of inspired you to take that profession as your calling in life? You know, I really feel like the journey into politics uh, started when I was a kid growing up in public housing in a border town, the border town of El Paso, Texas. And really, that is what shaped how I interact with the government as a young person, uh, translating for my mom, uh, really having to understand how government worked because that's what I needed to understand myself. And as a kid, I really saw that there were things that could be just be better. Uh, I was a Boy Scout as a kid as well. So for any Boy Scouts out there, um, I, you know, I, I, I was very much mentored by, by some incredible leaders in my community in El Paso. And all of that really kind of came together in college and being the first person in my family to go to college, I went to San Francisco, the Jesuit University of San Francisco. And that's where it all kind of came together. The, the, my, my passion for politics, my education, and, and then graduating, coming to New York and being injected into the middle of it all. Uh, it just, it was like a moment of, of like comp and confluence of everything that I was already thinking about. And, and here I am a council member in New York city. Yeah. So Carlos, the, the big theme that we've been covering in this month and that we really wanted to talk to is about the idea of community. And so, you know, when you came here now in your several little bit close to two decades now, right in New York city, you're approaching that marker. Yes. You know, I, I, so I wanted to ask you, what has really defined community and what you've been trying to build in New York City? What what really makes being a New Yorker a very unique experience compared to growing up in somewhere like El Paso? What, what makes New York City very unique, I think, is the incredible density of people. We live on top of each other. And we experience that at every every turn. If you're on the subway or your neighbors, uh, uh, you're walking outside, you're walking your dog, you're, you're constantly interacting with people. And the neighborhoods are shifting and changing and they've always shifted in New York City. New York City is never static, it's never the same, it's always changing. And so people have opinions about it. Now where community comes together is the relationships that people build. And one of the most beautiful things that I've experienced are the relationships with immigrant communities. Immigrant communities bring a vibrancy, a sense of 
of family and and also incredible um, misfortune with the recent uh, president president uh, that that really left many people vulnerable. And all of that brought people together and said, hey, I want to help my immigrant community, my neighbors, uh, if they have kids at school, um, the kids and the parents getting together. Uh, and that's really what brings my work into focus as we have been helping in New York City, the immigrant community, uh, and and really how that defines neighborhoods and, and helping people from deportations uh, and ensuring that they have what they need. Uh, COVID really even brought it deeper in focus as a community that not just needed uh, services and, and communication, but a whole rethinking about how we support communities that don't have social security cards, uh, but need a job and need, need basic income uh, and need the things that everybody needs, but the federal government has yet to create reform that can bring justice to those families. So, Carlos, speaking you of the, oh, the, ahead, uh, I wanted to ask him about about that um, the ID uh, program yes. that you started. Yes, that's. The, I would love to hear more about that. That sounded really cool because, like, I just I'm in Texas, and all my life, you just you know you turn in you sh you come to the office with um, your expired driver's license, and you can just get another one. But now there's the right. real ID thing, and that was I had to go get a birth certificate because my passport was expired too. I mean, it was so, and the whole time this is happening, so I had to make three trips, and I'm going like, imagine people just quitting. Like, how many people, like, just just don't have the time or can take off a of work or have the, the um, uh, transportation to go do this. And then also like, what does that mean? So they're probably driving illegally and then there's, then you get fines and stuff like that, but also just not, um, not being documented and, and trying to get a job like you just said, or, or house or a car, I mean, a loan, anything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about is access to city services and, and real um, shift and change to requiring an ID for almost everything to get into buildings, to get into your school. Uh, and all of those things require uh, identification. Now, there are a couple things that I think are important in, in this, this program that we call IDNYC the identification program that's municipal government run. So it's not from the state or it's not a passport from the government at the federal level, it's municipal government. So we don't have the power to create a driver's license, but we do know that many of the families that I talked to you about that we're really um, fighting for uh, just need an ID when they're interacting with the police. Uh, sometimes they want to, we need people to report crimes or they are jaywalking, for example, and they need, they, they're getting a citation on the street. And if you don't have an ID when you're interacting with police, uh, they can pull you into the station. That pulls people into the deportation uh, pipeline. And so we knew that there was a big need for people to have a municipal government identification. Now we made it as easy as possible uh, to be able to use your um, your passport from your or country country of origin, uh, a a cell phone bill, and a couple other identifiers. So we made it as easy as possible, but we wanted to make sure that it was safe and not able to be uh, um, uh, f create 
to create fraudulent cards. So it's a very safe program, but it allows for people to have that government issued ID to get into a building, uh, to access government services. And that really helped us make the case at the state level for driver's licenses to the undocumented community. Now, we also know that that undocumented members of our, of our community are driving. They're driving for their jobs. And we know that they need that as well. So this is, this is part of this longer term push for reform upstream into state. And then ultimately what we want is a federal shift and change so that people can have uh, and gain citizenship so that they can get their passports, so they can get their driver's licenses, uh, get a social security card. And, and so this is what the city can do. And we've, we've shifted into a national push so that other cities can do this as well. So they can push their state legislator, legislature. And, um, and this is part of the movement making that New York City is a part of. So Carlos, I wanted to ask you in that same vein along the form of immigration, I wanted to ask what the interaction you at the local level have with the federal government when it comes to the enforcement of these measures, and if there has been any advocacy that you could tell us about of what that process is like of contention of a sanctuary city if the federal government is looking to kind of come into play, uh, what is that process like and where is New York City currently on that status? Sanctuary city, what is it? Uh, and like the dynamic nature of the city of New York, it's in constant shift and change, and we're always struggling to get there. Uh, I, I wouldn't even consider our city sanctuary. There are so many gaps still at this point that leave many people vulnerable. But to your point, the interaction really has to be, and the pressure has to be at the federal level. And so that happens in a couple ways. One is we really ensure that all of the federal representatives. And in the city of New York, we have several uh, congressional members that are representing the city of New York. So we're constantly trying to work with them to ensure that they know what's going on at the city level, that when we see um, cases at the ground level, a constituent coming in that is in a deportation proceeding that needs just a little bit more help, that's where we pull in our federal uh uh, representatives that gives them a sense about what's going on, on the ground so that they can push for immigration reform. Two, we had a very difficult four years. Uh, that's an understatement. Uh, it was just terror. It was terror on, 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 a, on a daily basis. Sunset Park, Brooklyn, was one of the highest uh, focus points for ICE that received many uh, dozens and dozens during, um, even during COVID uh, uh, raids, in unannounced raids where, where ICE agents would go in the morning, knock on a door and, and, and really uh, attempt to pull people out of their homes. And so what we were able to do was to, is, is to essentially train through uh, Know Your Rights sessions to ensure that people knew that they didn't have to open the door to federal agents. And so these are the kind of things that are very much grassroots oriented and and uh, know your rights in style sessions in our community so that everybody knows their rights. But we're constantly informing the federal the federal representatives so they can bring that reform. And and to be honest, we just haven't gotten it. Uh, and, and it's going to require more than the federal representatives from New York City to make that happen. There are hundreds of congressional members, uh, and I'm hoping that Biden really uh, makes this a, a makes a commitment 
uh, I know he's already made it, but actually follows through with that commitment. Uh, and we're going to be showing very soon in the next few months about what the economic impacts are when you can stabilize a community, moving them from fear to um, to vibrancy and, and allowing them to thrive in cities like New York. That's what's going to move this economy forward uh, and, and get us back to uh, back to where we need to be. So, Carlos, just to follow up on that, could I get some clarification on some of those actions you'd be looking for from the Biden administration and federal uh, government? Does it go as far as some of the members of New York City call like an AOC in abolishing ICE? Or are you looking for more reforms in the process? What are you seeing as the proper way to kind of handle undocumented immigrants in New York City and nationwide? It's a few. It's a few things. One is abolishing the um, what we what we know as ICE, but the enforcement mechanism of the federal government is 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 part of it. Uh, Not only are we uh, seeing the overuse and 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 really in a in a terror kind of way use of federal federal government funds to separate families. Families that are already in 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 our in our communities, uh, these are these are government dollars, and so so ICE I think is one of one of the things that we have to focus on. The second thing is a a pathway to citizenship, uh, and this is a little bit more tricky because the the evolution of what we understand immigration to be has moved from a kind of civil government experience to more of a, of a kind of police force uh, and, and really kind of violently removing people. So we need to go back to the paperwork and just get people to, um, to uh, talk about their last 10, 15 years in the, in the, in the country. It's, it's almost like we got to bring back the humanity in what we understand immigration to be. Uh, and and I'm, I'm being kind of uh, general here because I think we can go in a lot of different ways. But the goal is citizenship. And then finally, we need due process for everyone. The Constitution really speaks to this, that every person in the country should have due process. But that requires a lawyer. And so what I'm going to be pushing for and what I'm going to continue to do after I'm a council member is to ensure that everybody has a lawyer when they're going in through and through a federal uh, a federal court court process. In the city of New York, we spend over 20 some million dollars a year to ensure that everybody that needs a lawyer gets a lawyer in a deportation proceeding while they are in a citizenship application process that all should be paid for by the federal government and we're really setting the tone uh, the tone for that kind of due process that the constitution affords everybody no matter your documentation status so these are the things i think are really important as we move forward So, you know, one final thing I wanted to ask you about is you brought about the idea of financial assistance to these communities and that in some of the federal aid packages, they had been left out. Uh, You mentioned one measure, a universal basic income, as something that you would like to be brought to New York City. Yourself, Andrew Yang, a couple mayoral candidates ran on this idea. I wanted to ask you how something like that would go about. Um, Would it require means testing? Uh, it was something that I always wanted to get some more clarification on how you wanted to structure your own while you were running. Um, how, how did you want to try and structure something for New York City? Well, I think what's what's important here is that there's so much skepticism around the concept of a basic income. 
And what we, we just witnessed in the last year and a half, and this is really an attempt to correct what we saw as the economic base fall from under us, it, are all the stimulus checks. And that was sent to Americans who were in need. But that really served as a, as a pilot for what I think the federal government, a state government or city government can do to get money into, the ho- into homes, into families, uh, and ensure that we can get it to as many people as possible. Uh, I think at its fullest, I, I do not believe a needs assessment is required. I think everyone deserves to have uh, a, a basic income to ensure that you can pay rent. Uh, and then that allows you to kind of explore and be free to understand what you want to do on, on, on this on this earth to to help it I think we, we all need a little bit more of of support when you have the filthy rich becoming even more rich uh, and and the poor becoming poorer and that's just the reality of it so I that that's the 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 orientation of the program but I think that this is this is a federal program and I think cities like the ID program that we have or the um, uh, the pain of lawyers for, for deportation proceedings, all of these things are models and pilots that cities can start doing to really push that up through the states and get the federal government to make that happen. This is a federal, this is a federal, um, uh, this, requ- this is going to require federal uh, response to actually make it happen. You know, we just, just today, uh, the federal government approved uh, an over trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Uh, And I'm still looking through it right now, but that's the kind of money that we need in this kind of program to really stabilize families, ensuring that people have what they need to eat, pay rent, get their medicines and live a good life. That that's what we're talking about here. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. I was very curious because I think there had been a lot of debate of how do you do these kind of local implementations? Because we've seen these uh, mayors for a guaranteed income uh, spread out across the country. There's been a several dozen so far. And a lot right. of these programs have been kind of pilots that are small because it does seem like they just want the federal government to finally step in. And this is kind of the, the sample data. Do you think it is possible at a local level to actually do universal Because, like, that's kind of the thing that I think a lot of us don't maybe understand is what kind of currency control does a a local government have? Like, what budgetary flexibility? Because we all know from the federal government, worst comes to worst, we hit that print button and we can print what we need. Uh, It obviously can have impacts, but they have that capacity. What what flexibility does a, a local government really have when it comes to policy like this? Well, the 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 main point that we have to make here and, and I'm going to give you some New York city numbers and it's just not the same as a small town in Ohio. So this is a federal, this, what we're talking about is a federal ultimate, a federal program. Now what a New York city can do differently than any other city is use its almost hundred billion dollar budget. That's what we just passed months ago to really build something out. That's not just robust, but shows how the city and the state can work together to make sure that people have what they need on the ground. You know, the federal government pushes money through the states and it gets down to the cities. We're going to need to understand how to bring this out uh, and bring it to homes. Now, what 
works really well in New York City. And what we've been able to build out through the IDNYC is relationships with people who are with the, um, what, what we understand as the highest need, hardest to reach populations. So if a federal government said tomorrow we're going to have universal basic income program, we'd say, great. Well, we have this amazing ID, NYC, that can go to some of the most vulnerable people in our city, and we can use that program to engage, to communicate, uh, and to build relationships that are already there and warm. And so this is part of the municipal government role and responsibility. So we, we may not see small towns in Ohio do a universal basic income, but we can have them do an IDNYC style program to get to people. Uh, people who are homeless, people who are recently incarcerated, immigrants, young people, uh, these uh, students, college students, uh, folks that can't drive for whatever reason. Uh, those are those are the kind of communities that we need to have engaged with government, and that's where local government comes in. We have the biggest impact in people's lives. Uh, I believe that. This is why I love being a council member because we get to touch people's lives at, at, in the most intimate ways. That's through um, that's through the work that we do as government uh, municipal government workers, and so that's why that's that's our, our job. But all we have to do as New Yorkers in New York is prove the case and get the federal government to make that happen. I do love hearing that the social infrastructure is definitely needed before we can get this kind of put into place. I agree. This is what we're doing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so. One of my other, um, one of the other things that I read that I really liked um, that you brought uh, the local community into the decision-making process of the budget. Yes. So uh, we, we were talking earlier about kind of a national, I feel like that's almost that on a micro level, but budgetary, you know, local budgetary referendum. And that is so cool because personally, for me, as like a you know a hippie anti-war person, like I hate that my tax dollars go to proliferation of chaos overseas. So like I wish that Americans could check a box, like yes, I want my tax dollars to go here. No, I don't want it to go here. But like you know, we don't have that luxury. But I think that is so incredible that you like kind of shepherded that procedure. Can I'd love to hear more about that? Yeah, thank you, thank you, Jackie, for uh, for asking me about that. It's it's one of the more beautiful blossoming things that I had no idea was going to get this um, kind of response, but also the the kind of social infrastructure that John was talking about or, 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 or uh, responding to uh, in, a, in a very big way. So what I think is important in this story is that this story really is on embedded in a community of immigrants. Almost 50% of the population is foreign born Chinese, speakers, Spanish, Arabic speakers, and we are, uh, that's the backdrop. So you have all these families that are uh, shy or distrustful of government. And so you bring this budget conversation and say, what would you do with one, two, three million dollars this year to support your community? What we saw were parents coming and saying, my kid doesn't have internet in their school. My kid doesn't have a bathroom in their school. My kid doesn't have a playground next uh, in, in, their, in their neighborhood. And so what we saw were these immigrant families that said, hey, we have a voice and I, I came to this country to do the things I need to do 
for my family to ensure that we, they get what they need. That spark and that connection and the, the, that confluence of opportunity with government and people who wanted to make sure that their kids had the best education uh, really sprouted this um, fervor and this commitment to understanding how government works. So in a one year, the first year cycle, parents were walking, at, you know, walking around the neighborhood now knowing what the school construction authority was, how much a playground cost, how much a light cost uh, a fixture on the, on the street, on the street. And they were like, let's do it again. And this is a yearly practice. So they came back into the room and said, what are we doing next? And, and then they, they brought more people in. And, and these are all mostly non-English speaking community members that saw themselves saying, I can't vote for you because I'm not a citizen and I'm not able to vote, but I will do this to get my neighbors to vote for a thing that's gonna make my community better. And, and so that, that just gives more opportunity and access for power. And what I believe at the end of the day is that power is not finite, it's infinite. And when you empower people, you bring more power to the table, which means that things can shift and, and change faster, which is better. Uh, because then you can start piloting new small little things that 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 can work and then spread it to other schools. And so it's so dynamic and so beautiful. And I don't even know all the nooks and crannies of, of, of just like how the community is is just better today, more informed. Uh, and and they're they're informing each other. And I get to step out of the way and allow for parents to advocate for themselves and for their for their kids and and so those are the kind of things that are just really beautiful and they're going to have long lasting impacts because the last thing i'll say is this we brought the voting process because people the way that it works real quick is idea happens in the neighborhood uh in september a committee comes together takes those ideas and the ones that are eligible for funding get put on a on a ballot and then the whole community votes there's no restriction for voting. Uh, and what we saw were, were really big requests for lower, lowering the voting age in our community. And the high school students were able to vote. And then the middle school students were like, hey, we want to vote too. So they put this whole petition to lower it to lower to lower to uh, middle school students. Then the fourth and fifth graders said, hey, my brothers and sisters are doing some work, but we're at the table too. We're doing work too. They put their petition together. So we lowered it to fourth and fifth graders uh, and we're embedding it into curriculum in schools so that their persuasive writing class is where they get to learn about participatory budgeting, vote in their class uh, and write essays about the projects that they worked on for the year. So this, and this is all happening within eight years and it's in, it's changing infrastructure. And once a small, and a, once a young kid uh, gets activated in that kind of powerful way, you'll never lose that. And uh, John, to your question earlier, I felt like that's what happened to me as a kid. I, I never lost that. I, I always felt like I was empowered because I was empowered for my family and I got to uh, be a leader in my family to translate for my mom to engage government agencies, and I'm still doing it today. So that we're we're building the, the leaders of tomorrow. Oh, well, I love that democracy is certainly uh, contagious. <laughs> we'll just put it that it way. Is. But you know, I wanted to ask you one question on that because sure. obviously it can be kind of a a slippery slope. And like, how far do we want to have it of direct say in everything we have? What do you believe the future of your positions are going to be if it's completely this kind of uh, direct democracy? 
Uh, do you believe it can go to all aspects of local government or does it have its limitations? I think if we look at how government sometimes works today, um, it needs more direct democracy. I think that there, there are, are um, problems with extremes where you only have one and not the other. I think this is about a balance. And I think that we can experiment with more opportunities for community members, especially those who can't vote for whatever reason, uh, should have a say in their neighborhood. This is why it works really well with municipal governments because you can, you can drill down to um, a neighborhood and allow a neighborhood to grow in the way that it needs to grow and develop in the way that it wants to develop and to to really siphon resources and say we gotta we gotta solve this the federal government would never be able to make that decision in any way and shouldn't but a local government should and so i think there's a there's a balance to this uh so i, I think i think your question just kind of speaks to the idea that that we need to experiment and through experimentation we can kind of see how it works and then like any experiment you tweak it and then you make it better or you scrap it and this is the scientific process. And then you bring a new hypothesis. And so um, I'm a believer in, in that kind of uh, scientific method, even when we're thinking about and practicing democracy. Yeah, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. That's the best part of the decentralized model is we get to have all these innovation hubs across America. doesn't mean it always works. Sometimes innovation fails and we, we come short and we got to rectify things. But that is the beauty of it at the end of the day is at, in theory, we're having more localized and personalized choice for what we need in our own communities. That um, sounds thank great. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, Jackie, <laughs> do you have any final questions for Carlos today? Um, I just kind of wanted to make a comment actually on on sure. participating and, and even people who can't vote. I always say that like voting is the absolute least like participation in your democracy. Like it's a, it's a, it's totally like we should be more interactive with our government, with our elected officials on every level, you know, municipal to national. And like, I think it's so beautiful that even getting those young kids, because I'm always talking about like the young ones, the, you know, the, the older folks, they've already made up their mind. They're, they've, they've, you know, dug into their camp, but like the young <laughs> folks, they're so much more sophisticated and, and can, can like just see through the BS that like we need to be targeting young folks to be active and engaged because it is their future and it is they're they're going to be the ones who are going to end up holding the bag the more empowered like oh my god that word is one of my favorite words in the whole world uh the more empowered these young folks are and engaged and activated the younger the earlier oh my gosh and then they have you have a lifetime just like you and i kind of feel the same way like growing up um kind of really poor and and seeing just observing how things are in certain areas you know you go to my dad's house in the rich neighborhood and then i'd come back home and it was like wow there's really two two separate texases you know so uh and I, yeah so that being said i love the idea of planting seeds and empowering people and getting to make their own decisions and where their tax dollars goes especially locally i think that's incredibly beautiful and elegant like it's something that can totally be rolled out across the board especially in the age of information in the digital age like how do you feel about bringing technology into the you know the 
I don't electoral process. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and and I think that this is another this is another chance to lean into experimentation, and and really not being afraid to try something new. I I think that. Uh, what's really interesting, and I'll, and I'll share in the participatory budgeting evolution during COVID, we had to go online 100% because we didn't want to do what we were enjoying and and really was part of the social fabric of the participatory democracy um, uh, budgeting process, PB. Uh, and it, it didn't go very well we learned very quickly that the the way that people engaged in conversation was in person uh and it was it was a real telling moment and i'm still trying to figure that out like how do we, how do you solve for for communities that just want to do things on paper uh want to engage people in conversation and uh so that we're not saying we're going to go online all the way all the time um because because that's where we want to go, but really understand what what's the goal here. And what we understood very well is that participatory budgeting was a social engagement. This is something where people wanted to come together and talk about this new park idea, get excited about it and vote on it. The idea that it would just come on a screen didn't engage people. And so that's important. That's an interesting uh, scientific a data point. And so this is part of the evolution, but we're in COVID and we wanted to be safe. And, yeah. um, and, and so, but this is all part of, again, the democracy. And so uh, technology for the young people's work really well, but for the seniors, not so much. And, uh, and so what does that mean about not engaging the seniors anymore? Because they have to put, they have to get on an iPad and, and vote. Uh, and so, so these, this is, this, these are the growing pains of, uh, and especially during COVID that we have to really understand, but I, 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 I like technology. I think it works. Yeah. It just has to serve the purpose and the, and the, and the real, um, the, the reason for our being here. Uh, it can't just be about convenience. This is, this is about people at the end of the day, this is about people. Yeah. And community, which is kind of like, you know, the, the, that's right. Basis of our conversation, but we, what we've been talking about this whole time is community on a very local municipal level, or also like on the national level. You know, America is one big old community, and so we need to work, learn how to maybe work within our community, uh, small and large scale. You know, to to get things working a little better. So, but. I agree. And what you've that done everybody. shows that it totally can be done. Mm -hmm. I, I agree, and it and it's not because of me; it's because of the incredible people on the ground, and uh, I get to to be a part of that. And I I've just I feel so honored and and privileged to have been part of that for the last eight years. Oh well, we're very glad you got to share some of that time with us and share your Thank thoughts you. with all of us of how do we engage kind of in our local political system. Uh, Carlos, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share or even advice for people who want to get engaged in their local politics? Because we cover a lot of national politics here at the program. And so we'd love for people to have some sense of where to even kind of get their mind around starting in local politics. You know, I think that the the best thing that I can say right now is to really start home at home. 
and and to really kind of build these consent concentric circles that show how you and your family and your friends uh, are are needing response from government and that will show you i think where the things that are going to keep you and maintain a sense of passion for what you want government to do and if we can all really understand that government is just the reflection of us as the people and what we want uh, that that just brings it more home and and i think that governments are are ultimately a people institution which means that we can change it which means that you can change it and if you have that idea that's going to make your your life and your family's life and your friend's life and your neighborhood life better then someone needs to hear it and talk about it and organize and and build that power Oh, well, I'm very glad to hear it. It seems like Jackie may have had her own broadband issue cut out, but you know, for on behalf of both of us, Carlos, I really wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, and we expect to hopefully talk with you in the future because we really appreciate you taking the time with us. You got have it. A nice day, man. I'll see you again later. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Okay, everyone. So that was Carlos Menchaca. We're very thankful for him coming on to talk about local politics. I want to kind of reemphasize the importance of local politics. I know we do a lot of national politics coverage, but this is the place where you get that most tangible impact on your own personal lives. The people have control over your own local area. And if you think about it electorally, a lot of these processes have far less engagement than national elections do. And the population size that's eligible to vote is smaller. So these elections are swung by less and less people. And so your organizing efforts can make a higher and higher impact in your local area. So I do invite you all to get involved. And we want to thank Carlos for having that wonderful discussion on universal basic income and immigration and participatory budgeting as well. Uh, That being said, everyone. We want to remind you, please come support the People's Basics. Subscribe down below so that you're notified whenever we have new content coming up. Please make sure that you leave a like uh, on our page. It helps us boost with the algorithm, so we really appreciate your support. And check the description section down below for our link tree that has all of our links. We want you to be joining us in our Discord. That's where we're doing our organizing. So please come join us there and join the People's Basics movement where we advocate for the universal basics. That being said, everyone, we hope you all have a great evening or day out there, whatever time of day you're watching. And as always, we hope you stay classy out there.